You are listening to the Antler VC Cast. We are your hosts. I am Yusti Salavara and I'm the co-founder and managing partner of Antler. I am Pooja Barwani, the marketing director of Antler. In this series, we feature stories of exceptional people who are playing a key role in building and shaping the next wave of tech and the way it is integrated into all we do. We take a look at the transformation that is taking place in an increasingly global and digital world. We will talk about innovation, building and scaling startups, mistakes they made, pivots they navigated through, and lots more. We want to know their story, how they did it, the challenges they faced, and how they overcame them. Stay tuned. Today we have with us Aditi Avasti, founder and CEO of Mbibe, which is an edtech platform that uses AI and analytics to carve out personalized learning programs for students. Mbibe has raised over $190 million since its launch in 2012. Investors include Kalari Capital, Lightbox Ventures and Reliance. Aditi is joining us today from Bangalore. Welcome to the Antler VC cast, Aditi, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Hey, Pooja, how are you? I'm very well. Can we start by telling our listeners, uh, our global listeners, a bit about yourself and what Mbibe's mission is at its core? Sure. So, um, you know, I grew up in India and I lived and worked abroad across four continents, which is very interesting because I always used to want to throw myself off, off the deep end into newer spaces with newer teams and newer problems. And uh, when I was doing that, I, I, you know, had this very interesting perspective of, actually, I had a perspective, you tell me if it's interesting, of the three great races of the world, um, the Caucasians, which is mostly the West, and then you have, or people who grew up there, not necessarily that demographic, and um, people from Africa, and then, you know, people from Asia. And I felt like people from Asia, we're just like born with the notion of hard work is the real deal, like you just have to run. And it doesn't matter where you're running to or what you're trying to do, but you just got to run. Because if you stop running, someone's going to take over. And from, from, an, uh, from the West, you know, I learned that there's a notion of possibility. Because when I went to business school in the USU of Chicago, I met people who said, yeah, I majored in physics, now I work in a hedge fund. I was like, I'm sorry, that's not right. That's not what my mom taught me. Like when you major in physics, you become a teacher or you do something, you know, like physically. I just made up a word. Um, and, <laughs> it uh, works. <laughs> And the third, um, you know, thing was about Africa. I was like, everybody is just so happy. You know, you're sitting in like really hot 90 degrees weather outside and you put like a pair of headphones in a person's ears and they just start like dancing, you know, and they're just, it's just so happy as a continent. So I was like, I don't know about happiness, but it would be so interesting if you could infuse the notion of possibility into this whole part of the world that's only believing in hard work, right? So that they can become better masters of their own destiny. So, so the idea that the vision that Mbaye really has is that how do you create a no regrets future for every child? And when we went back to 2012 and really started to research as to what the problem statement is, we obviously started with test prep as an organized sector because it was investable and all that. But the idea was, how do you make a person master of their own destiny by providing them the right data and information and the right context to consume content or make life choices by the by as they go forward? So Aditi, where does the AI element fit in? It became an AI platform because data is all about and personalization is all about the number of variables you can use and the number of ways in which you can understand a person. So that's what happened. So we look at the feedback loops in three broad contexts. The first is in the form of the information the child seeks. So think of it like a 
ByteDance for education. We're not quite there yet, but you know, we're working to build that out from a content standpoint. So just free content, right? I mean, I, what are the top careers of the world? What are the, where are the best colleges? You know, what should I be thinking right now? Because my parents don't have the ability to mentor me, for example. The second is in terms of behavior. So we're the first co- company in the world that has proven that you can statistically influence uh, behavior through closed loops that are entirely online, you know, in terms of the way you engage with the platform. So the platform tells you what to do and we've seen people change behavior. So starting with simple things like stamina and test prep or confidence and test prep to the, to the way you actually master learning when you go through content, when you're not in a test, we figured out how to capture behavior and influence behavior. Um, and the third area is what we call knowledge, you know, and um, we have our own unique sort of take upon, uh, you know, knowledge and it's a pretty radical view about the industry per se, because I'm standing at a very orthogonal point of view from the rest of the world on how we should look at EdTech. But we also sort of look at closed looping, you know, um, knowledge feedback and helping students improve around the knowledge that they accumulate, but doing it at an extremely forensic level such that there is no regret for any year that you did not study in the past. Yeah, that's quite incredible. And uh, the, the mission you have is is truly sort of aspirational. Uh, you know, I always find myself going back to, you know, the beginning and the origin stories. And I, I would be fascinated to hear, like, how, how did you get started? Because it's such a huge mission, but you got to start somewhere. So, you know, how, how did you get going, especially, you know, as a, as a solo founder? Yeah, so... Um... So back in 2012, I was in Ghana. Uh, no, in 2010-11, I was in Ghana and I was on the phone with you know my friend um, at about 2 a.m. in the morning saying, I'm so frustrated. He's like, what happened? I said, well, the president of Barclays Bank Ghana, the chairman, is not letting me you know, um, launch mobile banking. And he's like, so yeah, so escalate and go to sleep. Like, what's wrong with you? And I said, no, you don't understand. Ghana needs mobile banking because of their unbanked population. And I was ranting for about an hour about how that impact needed to be created. And then, you know, I then I took a step back. I was like, what am I doing? I'm in a large bank and I just clearly want to move everything so fast and so hard. And the answers to how big is big and how good is good are just not happening here. So I need to apply myself to something. And I, I think at that point of time, looking back, right, right from consulting to like sales to product development to a bunch of different things that passed through my hands, right? Because I'm a doer. So I need to feel confident about the fact that I can do stuff. And I was kind of thinking that I'm ready to figure out my next step as an independent move and, and figure out a problem to solve in the world. And, um, and you know, if you look at my LinkedIn, it says, wanted to want to make a massive dent in the universe. And it's just been something I've, I was born with. Like I was always wanting to express myself and get out there and just feel extremely cathartic, you know, about, about um, you know, my effort at the end of the day. So I was like, clearly you want to do something. So then I thought about what space. And it had to be an impact-centric space for the reasons I just mentioned. And it went back to my own experience growing up. And then, you know, the vantage point of the four continents, like I said, that how do you kind of, you know, hit humanity and make us all like so much better, you know? And how do you do that in a pervasive way? The other space I thought about was healthcare. And, uh, you know, but I figured that tech can do so much more in education. And I was so influenced by this product called M-Pesa in Kenya, where, you know, simple use case, 95% of the population, you know, adopted it. And um, it was just such a beautiful case study around product development meets business development meets the right incentives. 
And that kind of, you know, everybody from the chairman of the bank to like the guy who worked in his office and cleaned his room or whatever were users, right? So, so that's what got me hooked on to education. Now, now the question was, I was sitting in the U.S. because I went and joined um, the new corporate development group that Barclays had set up at the time where we were looking at startups to uh, figure out new tech and how it would apply. So which is quite a contrast from Africa because now we were looking at the outer boundaries of tech, and, uh, but we were still looking at financial services as a sector. So I, I came to know about like level up games, you know, Google Ventures, all of these different things. And it was very fun learning about that new space in tech. But that's the time when I stopped sleeping because um, my, my little living room in Philadelphia was converted into a war zone where I picked up uh, 150 global education companies right from Megastudy to Khan Academy. Megastudy is a South Korean there, which became the largest ed tech company, um, you know, $2 billion value just in like four years. And um, I, 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 you know, I took screenshots of their homepages and every single page made a laundry list of their features stuck them all around me and sat in the center, wondered why is it that there is so much money being spent on creating education products, but the world's largest taxi company and software company and blah, blah, blah are so much bigger than ed tech where 40% of consumer savings is actually reserved for that, you know, business is just not going online. So what's missing? That's when I kicked my brother in the butt and I said, dude, get up. You're a marketing guy. And I want you to get out there and talk to consumers because, you know, I think, when I, when I was in, again in Barclays um, in Kenya, I learned that it is very, very important to like take your little whiteboard and go face the mirror and, and, and talk to people, right? So I went ahead and sort of, um, you know, talked to um, students, parents and teachers, all stakeholders, 15 cities through my brother. Then we did secondary research. We did, you know, qualitative research. We did deep focus interviews just to insight and understand what's the gap. And what I'm super proud to say is that through eight years, that insight hasn't changed, you know? So we've kind of stuck to exactly what you were trying to build for. And the gap that came out was the gap is not more content, it's context. It's contextual delivery of content. For a student, it is effort with timely help and direction. And for a parent, it is not being blindsided with what actually is required by the kids. So they don't keep sort of overcompensating by just pouring more money without any direction or reason. And for a teacher, it's about managing large class sizes with that touch of personalization maintained as you keep going forward, because that's effectively what creates learning outcomes. So that's how I got started. And then uh, we built our first prototype and uh, we got crazy feedback. And then without any tax planning, any thought about the future, any, like any planning whatsoever, I just jumped to India. That's what happened. Wow. I mean, Amazing. And, and what, you know, what, what is a lot of things stuck out for me from what you've described just now, but one of them that I want to ask about first is you said over eight years, um, you know, as in the gap hasn't changed. And if anything, would you say with current events, in fact, uh, the need of the way you are doing ed tech and, and uh, tailoring the programs based on the students' needs, has that in a way made your, uh, use case and your product far more relevant? Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, COVID has been quite topical for ed tech, but even before COVID, right, 30 to 80% of uh, teacher posts are vacant in the country. And this is not just an Indian statistic. So now think about it. Um, you know, if you don't have um, the ability to do upfront diagnosis, like in a hospital, because there's no doctor, what would you prefer to buy an MRI machine or a photocopier? You need an MRI machine because 
you know, you need to understand what's going on and you need something that can add value to the situation, not just sort of something that can, is only as good as the guy who shows up in the camera. So the thesis for us was, you know, we've got to be, do contextual delivery. And then we realize contextual delivery creates learning outcomes. And if you look at Imbibe's mission now, you know, we say we, we want to build a learning and life outcomes platform for the world, which is also related to what I said earlier, saying, why is there no very large education company? The reason is everybody around the world is selling inputs and consumers and students and parents buy outcomes, you know, and we don't spend $150,000 to go to Howard just because, you know, Howard is going to give us a great textbook. You know, we go to Howard because it has life outcomes for us in terms of trajectory, career path, in terms of what we actually learn, right? Or same thing for any great school for that matter. Same thing for a cram school for that matter. But if you take the cram school's notes and you take the cram school's recorded lectures and you sell them in retail, you can never sell that for that, that price because again, it converts itself to an input. The X factor around you know, if you build a regression equation around what are the factors that lead to a person actually improving, um, you know, that, 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 that X factor is kind of missing because now it's just a disaggregated set of inputs. So, so we said we want to build um, learning outcomes and, you know, we filed several patents on that now because an average 20 to 30 hours on the platform, a student's concept mastery moves up by 40 to 80%, you know, right from multiplication as a topic in early childhood to, you know, calculus in later grades. And it's, and we've done that through a very interesting framework where knowledge and behavior are hit upon simultaneously. And this is with zero teacher intervention. So I feel like absolutely now when there is no classroom and where it's, you know, disaggregated, ed tech can't be spray and pray. Ed tech has to figure out how do you improve a kid when they're sitting in their room, their parents can't teach them and the teacher's not around. So, so I feel like that's exactly, and if you look at the public dialogue and debate in the country, even from a government procurement standpoint, it's moving towards how do we get learning outcomes? So I would love to sort of make a, you know, a plug about a completely revolutionary new way to look at ed tech, which is different from how every single person and industry researcher is looking at the sector. So what, how should we look at ed tech in this new world? So so, you know, like the way people look at ed tech right now is like there's K-12, there's higher ed, there's vocational, there's pre-K, early learning. You know, that's how they classify companies. That's how they classify funding raised by companies. And that's how they kind of talk about solutions provided and things like that. But if you, if you look at basic, like, you know, quote unquote MBA theory, right? It tells you that if you want to maximize the size of any space, you maximize impact on the end consumer. And the only way of it in which a student improves is if they can go back and fix all of the stuff that they left behind. So if you really think about it, a high school kid needs to go back and fix primary education. But today, there is no way to hand the child a list of what's missing in primary education. There is no single platform that allows you to navigate edu- education horizontally with where your data and context is preserved like medical records all the way. So to me, you know, we, that's the knowledge graph that we invented, which is a source of our um, knowledge nudges, which is basically one single line of sight from the age of one, uh, the age of five to the age of 30, around the things that you learn, uh, line specifically to the Indian curriculum. But given it's stored at a concept, conceptual level, every single other curriculum in the world is just a labeling exercise away, which is less than two weeks. And how should EdTech be looked at exactly in terms of these different layers? Uh, the way ed tech should actually be looked at is to me, three tiers. 
The first and the most basic layer is content aggregation, which means you sit in any space, you take a bunch of videos, you take a bunch of questions and you put them in a user interface for a particular space. It could be, you know, 12th grade, it could be college, it could be vocational, professional, fine. You know, so you've got like a, you know, you've got a container and you dump some content in it. And that's, you know, what you call what some people call edtech. I call it content aggregation. The other kind of, uh, you know, platforms at this level are transactional players. So let's say if you build a video conferencing solution, right? And that you can use for healthcare, fashion, anything. Then that's not an edtech solution. It's just video conferencing, okay? Because the video conferencing tool is not adding value to the teacher. So there's no ed in that tech. The second tier, which becomes interesting, is when you actually take all of the content you have and you build a uniform taxonomy behind it. Because now suddenly the decision of the content consumption rests on the algorithm, not on what you choose to go and uh, check out. So to give you a very simple physical analogy, the first is a library. The second is a guy who walks you through the library and says, read this book, now read this book, now read this book and builds a custom reading path for you. You know, here's my uh, war cry to the world. Like, let's stop segmenting education in a way that doesn't design student success. We've got to design ourselves around student success. When we talk about data interoperability, let's forget about talking about data interoperability at an ERP level, just because college records are becoming a pain in the butt. Let's talk about curricular interoperability. Let's talk about lifelong learning. And why would we segregate education from skilling? It makes no sense. The first thing to do is you take concepts across the board and look at what skills they represent. Because when you go through your K-12 curriculum, you also learn things like quantitative skills. You learn abstract thinking. And the problem is we never have a report card that tells us that we're just measured on our curricular progress. And finally, you know, if that is the case, then you can actually bring in advanced skills and bolt them onto some basic foundational skill clusters where a sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade kid can do so much more than just be in school. Yeah, we really need to reimagine education. Yeah, it's fundamentally a big transformation of how pretty much everything is done, right? Um, like you're on this mission. What's what's been the response from like the the education system? Like, uh, have you faced kind of resistance? Quite often, people are. Uh, resistant to change unless they see the the like clear immediate benefits. So, you know, what's the what's the system response been in a way? So, so I think you you hit the nail on the head. You see, when you said, um, you know, clear and immediate benefit is the way to create the adoption hook. Right. So for us, the the we don't go in saying we're going to change everything. You know, that's what our first conversation when we talk to people. I actually don't really believe in the word disruption. You know, I believe in change and I think change works for change management where you do two things, right? The first thing you do is you set your foot firmly in whatever you consider dystopian and you have to be part of the system because change starts with lend me your years, you know, and uh, you can't, it's like Mark Antony's speech and, and Julius Caesar where he starts with like a note, you know, that, that strikes a chord with the citizens and then takes them over to the other side. Um, so, so you've got to embrace the reality of today. And I feel like a lot of systems in education that are being built around a utopian future always sort of tend to ignore that you've got to start somewhere today. So if you look at imbibe systems, if you adopt the platform as a student, you're going to get the highest score you possibly can with the level of learning that you have. And you have tons of stories around that now. So which is a very, very important adoption hook from a student standpoint. 
when you look at our AI packaging algorithms around content, and if you look at our intelligent content from a question bank or from a media standpoint, that is available for teachers to reduce their time spent on preparing for lessons outside the classroom to zero. So for teachers, time is money, you know, and for institutions as well, teachers are the biggest cost. And, and being able to deliver personalization at scale is leading to higher outcomes for these institutions as well. And we're working with everybody right from the regulator of India to um, the largest private institutions to like the smaller schools, you know, and even regions where there's no electricity. So, so the way we are doing this is like we're, we're looking at these systems sort of finding root in all of these different use cases so that, you know, just because you design a personalization based ed tech platform should not mean that it becomes inaccessible to a few people, which is what I love about, you know, the way we are approaching this because infrastructure is an independent problem. So the adoption hooks in the short term are save money, save time, score higher. When you come on board, you give me data because when you consume content on my platform, I have everything hooked up to the graph where I collect this data and I'm collecting, you know, incredibly exciting stuff to like look at policy reform, curricular reform and things like that. And I feel like, you know, the whole bias around um, improving the student is something which is in everybody's mind, right? I mean, nobody wants to say, screw the student. It's only about, it's very hard to profitably be able to, you know, um, influence everybody and profitably be able to improve everybody. So this allows that to happen. And for, for, for the longest time, right? I mean, we're not building rocket science. We're building something which has been happening for the longest time. We're just, you know, massively accelerating the impact because tech can see more than the naked eye can see. So we can detect learning deficiencies much better. You know, we can discern behavior much better. But if you look at a classroom, the moment a student takes a test and comes out, the first question a teacher asks is, did you study carefully? Did you apply yourself to it? Which is behavior. The next is, what happened? What were your mistakes? Which is knowledge, right? So, so it's the same thing. So the philosophy is the same. It is now becoming possible. So it's like Facebook, right? Back in the day where from a product market fit, I feel like where back in the day, everybody was like, yeah, sure. I want to keep in touch with my friends, but where is the time? But now suddenly it's possible. So I feel like any kind of change has to be rooted upon a visceral truth that everybody understands and feels and perceives. All learning is connected. Everybody knows that, you know, everybody understands closed looping is powerful right from when Bloom came out in 19 whenever. So yeah, so that's happening. From a policy standpoint and a government standpoint, we're seeing a lot of uh, support. And I mean, there's a bunch of people <clears throat> that we're talking to at the state and central government level, even outside of uh, India, where they're like, hey, you know, we want to figure out how to create learning outcomes. You know, the, the World Economic Forum, I found out through a recent interaction, is looking at how do you get a uniform curriculum, you know, that, that becomes a standardized taxonomy to engage because everybody understands that education everywhere is different, but, the, you know, the talent pool on the top is flat. I mean, Pooja, you would recruit for the same jobs, you know, as somebody else would in your space, regardless of what school they went to. So I think, I think the global dialogue is, is coming towards this. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love it. So my wife's a teacher and, you know, for years I, I listened to her like frustrated venting about how much of her time goes into somehow like helping the weakest students get to like a minimum bar and she's not able to personalize things for the better students and, 
you know, uh, I mean, most of her experience is in Europe, right? So uh, maybe again, the systems are different, but if there was a system to help with the personalization, that'd be fantastic. So, I mean, hopefully you get this out of India to the global scene soon, right? Um, it sounds, sounds amazing. So I want to talk to you about, you know, since you said that this vision has been there sort of from day one and when you express it, it, it's, it's, it's something new. It's, it's, uh, and when you were fundraising, you managed to, you know, go through that track pretty, uh, fast and, um, and, and managed to be very successful at that too as a solo founder. Can you tell us a bit about that journey and especially like the first, your first raise, uh, your first million? How did you do that and convince someone when there isn't like any, when you're the business plan, there isn't any proof of concept, so to speak? It's something that you really need to believe in changing and, and that person would probably need to believe in that you would be able to bring about this change. How did, how did that work? So um, it's actually quite interesting because I raised my first million, almost a million for 700,000 without even incorporating the company. So, um, you know, so I had my, I used to call myself like a girl in a, in a, in a black and yellow cab in Bombay with a piece of paper. That was my fundraise. And, and, um, I actually did not even imagine I'd be able to raise money. Hell, when I moved back to India, I thought I'd probably do a job and quote unquote incubate my idea on the side. You know, um, that was my thought process. And, but, you know, like I remember my first conversation was with uh, a VC in, in Mumbai and I thought I would ask him for a job. And when I opened my mouth, I, I, st- I choked because I couldn't talk about getting recruited. I just like literally was a body giving me like a something like an autoimmune response to like applying for a job because I was so passionately invested in what I wanted to build. And I just said, I have an idea. And then I was honestly, I have a resume, which is I have an idea. And, and I started talking and then suddenly I had a meeting with their partners, you know, and I was like, whoa, wait, you know, this seems like it has some, this is some serious shit going down, you know, like there, I want to meet me and I'm not from IIT and, you know, I, I don't have a network in India and, and, and I'm a girl and, you know, they want to meet me. Um, so I went to meet them and, um, and then I, you know, I had another, um, you know, conversation which was set up by somebody, which I wanted to tell them exactly all the things their payment company was doing wrong because, you know, I was, I'd come from the financial services sector. So I met this VC in, um, you know, again, in lower Perel in Mumbai and, um, we started talking about payments, but then we started talking about education. And I still don't remember how that transition happened. And it was a half an hour meeting and it became a two and a half hour, like war fit, war footing wall scribble exercise, you know, where like there were Vespas drawn on the, on the board about teachers who go door to door and like the map was drawn and like all of that was happening. And it was literally like, um, you know, like a war room kind of a discussion. And I don't know where those two and a half hours zip by. And then, I went home and I was in a daze because I was like, why was I asked so many questions? Like what's going on? And then I got an email, here are 56 questions. And if you can answer these questions, you know, we'd like to fund you. There were other people who would fund you for less. And there was no conversation about fundraising in that room. You know, uh, taught me my first lesson about fundraising is like, it's very simple that if there are large attractive spaces, which have deep consumer spend, there will always be investors who want to take part in those spaces. And, you know, even investors are empathic to the human condition and they, and these large spaces are often sort of bound with like, you know, um, dystopian realities that create opportunities for quote unquote disruption. We already established that. I don't like that word. Right. Um, 
but and, and you know they'll be willing to to engage um you know on that front but what they're looking for basically is market experts who would demonstrate superior um understanding of how to navigate a space right because everybody understands you know not going to get it right the first time there's no slam dunk so you want to work with people who a are probably strong functionally but they're also people who've devoted enough of themselves to understanding the sector so that they can predict the second bounce of the ball and they know what to do when shit doesn't work out so that's my dog he's going to cry sorry um his name is data by the way um so so um you know so so that's so yeah so that's basically how the first million happened and um and then after that you know we raised and and by the way the first million happened on that whole thesis of data being the gap there was no knowledge graph then there was nothing like you know that happened by the by as we kept building the product how did the big investment from reliance actually happen the big check from reliance happened because of two very interesting reasons one is that these guys are deep product thinkers you know who look at fundamentally impacting a space that they enter for its first principle reasons right i i remember a story from uh, you know mr dhirubhai ambani who was the founder of the group which kind of gave me goosebumps when i heard it you know and it taught me this is what entrepreneurship is like and that's why i wanted to sort of work with these guys because i knew that they're going to think about the game first principles right because truly truly uh, again the word disruptive plays are fa- are absolutely first principle centric right they're not plays that happen um you know when you try to do incremental change okay so so what he said was you know back in the day polyester was super expensive in india and crude oil was like super cheap you know that uh, so polyester was worn in 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 indian weddings back in the day right it was like shiny and really nice and whatever so mr ambani said i'm going to make polyester available to the average the poor guy he just said that and he said, you know what his rationale was he says you don't need to iron it and it dries in half an hour and they can't afford many clothes so it has to reach them today you know crude oil is super expensive india's the largest producer of polyester in the world and it's cheaper than what it was back in the day so that's entrepreneurship to me right so so which is where i think the second the 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 big raise happened because of first principles alignment around creating outcomes and they saw what we'd already done with test prep and i guess they they look at you as a founder and then they look at your team what characteristics should a founder have i believe that being a founder is not a job it's an attitude i'm like you know i mean that's something that jack dorsey said um i haven't followed a lot of things he's done but you know this is a very good uh, quote and it makes a lot of sense so i have a team that's founder like now around me um and um you know we all sort of stood there and decided what we want to do next and and this just made a lot of sense because we are very clear as to why we're doing this so no regrets means uh for every child means every child gets this and when you have the largest distributor in india wanting to back your play and he believes in your vision exactly the way you do and wants you to think even bigger than your partner you know so that's that was the story there on the fundraise that's super fascinating and exciting I, uh, you know to folks out there listening a bit of a don't try this at home type uh, story like uh, you know but uh, <laughs> if if you want to maximize your chances but uh, it, it does show that anything's possible and obviously a testament to your incredible you know will and vision in making it happen i'm very like curious about the tech side of things in the beginning because you know 
it sounds like from the very beginning, it was a very like tech heavy, deep tech business that you were envisioning. At the same time, you know, I believe you're an engineer by training, but but not really like a computer scientist style, if, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here. So how did you like go about convincing the investors slash getting the first like tech superstars on board? So I love this question. You know, when I started out, I knew we had to build adaptive, you know, because that's what I knew at that time. And um, so I, I, I gave a call to like, I made a call to a person in who was an ex-U Chicago EdTech alum and said, hey, how's it going? How do you build adaptive learning? And he's like, I don't know. You just do it. So he was like, I was like, all right, let me just do it. Then I phoned up a friend in Stanford saying, dude, I'm stuck. How do you build adaptive learning? You know? So what I understood really well was logic. Um, you know, and I think that's what engineering gives you. So I used to participate to the pseudocode level and then people used to write it. So initially I think it was a lot about storing a lot of tags and, um, and storing a lot of data about the student and looking and understanding insights because you know the best machine learning uh, algorithms start with like expert training and building that initial calibration and that's what we were doing we we're doing mlops back in 2012 we just didn't know we were doing it um so then what happened that you know i saw that we had a parameter called ideal time per question which is the time that you know superman would take if you if he were to attempt that question for the first time so that's ideal time it's a property of the content right and, um, and uh, when, when you have that parameter and you look at the actual time a person takes engaging with the, with the question, it raises you know, a lot of eyebrows, right? Because if you take too much time and you get it right, suddenly you're looking beyond correct to overtime correct. Or you're looking at, you know, if you're looking too little time, you're saying, hey, so you fluked through this clearly. So that means that's not a learning deficiency. So it's such a basic common sense insight, right? Like, I mean, this is really not rocket science. But a lot of education is like this. Uh, it only requires you to translate this understanding forensically and code it into your database and then figure out how to like look at your events and blah, blah, blah. So for example, one of the things we do now is we look at how much implicit data do we collect, how much explicit data do we collect, and, and we allow like free trials with no re- registration because, you know, at, at a very minimum, you know, we get who searched for what right now. You know, but, uh, but what you see right now is our beta products or integrated products coming out in three months or two months to the market which is going to be a big bang, K-12 through everything um, with media, with learning, with personalization, with the knowledge graph baked on the back, which is what we've been working on for the past two years. So that's, that was the beginning of it. Then, then over a period of time, when I saw this ideal time parameter and other things, I realized, wait a minute, we're actually creating learning outcomes to our system. Could that even be possible? Because I knew it was a pipe dream in EdTech at the time that you, know, you create learning outcomes through tech engagement. And I was like, let me run a regression. So I started running regressions, which kind of went into like, you know, spreadsheets crashing every five minutes because they were overcomputing. And that's when I realized that I need data scientists in. So here's how that meeting went down. So I had a meeting in my Bangalore office. We just moved and my board, board was there. And I said, hey, guys, you need to hire data scientists. They're like, you don't have the money to hire data scientists. I was like, I won't take a paycheck. So your, your board's going to be net neutral, but we need data scientists. So that happened and we got the data scientists, you know, and uh, when, and I got, I got Kiorin and I got, you know, Achintin because I, I again believe in hiring people as, as co-founders whenever we start a new team instead of sort of be going the distance by yourself because it can get overwhelming. And then that led to our first pattern, which was imbibe score quotient that you could predict a 95% the score a student's going to get if, uh, you know, you map out 27 parameters 
uh, across behavior and knowledge. And, um, and all of that came from the, the field work we did hypothesizing. Now we've got um, advisors right from like Amit Shet, who's uh, the world's most leading thinker in semantic graphs to like, you've got, you know, the guy who had search of interest, you know, working to advise us on search. We've got a, a bunch of people and we have like a team of almost 100 data scientists who are working on deep learning and a bunch of different things. But that's how it started. And how large is your team now? And when you, I just want to clarify something from my own. When you say co-founders, you're still essentially a solo founder, but you have a core team. Is that how it is? Yeah. So, so a team like founders. And, you know, I wanted to bring this up You've, uh, in terms of, you know, being in India, being a woman in tech uh, and that you're doing something very deep tech, data centric there must have been times when a lot of times when you've been the only woman in the room, whether it's fundraising or, you know, um, is this something that has ever bothered you? And is there uh, any sort of advice or, or, or something that you can tell women who are in this? Cause it's a mindset thing with a lot of women when they are sort of the only woman in the room, whether they're pitching and asking for money or they're just, you know, uh, in this, in this very male dominated industry. So let me ask your answer your first question. So we're about 1500 people now. Um, you know, but I work very hard to keep our fundamentals right. So our fixed cost is very low uh, and our variable cost is high because I've got the team structured as outcome driven. And I think that it doesn't matter how much money you raise, you can't forget the value of a dollar as an entrepreneur because it's going to impact your overall outlook and your overall uh, returns to your shareholders. So that's something which is important uh, to note. Um, so in terms of uh, women in tech, right, I feel like so I was the person who never joined the Chicago Women in Business Group when I was at B school. Because I was like this, what do you mean women in tech? Like, it's really boring. And I used to hate the Women Entrepreneurship Awards and whatever. I, I don't like it at all, actually. Um, but then I, I, I made a group of, uh, you know, women leaders in the com- country called, we call it Entrepreneur X, or the X chromosome. Um, and I realized that it's not as much the fact that when you enter a boardroom and you're a woman, you're intimidated. Because I've never... I never look at gender in the workplace. Like I don't see gender in the workplace. You know, I just see uh, personality and I see ideas. And that's just how I've been right from the, the beginning. Um, but I will wear my sparkly shoes because like I said, I don't care what other people do. Like that's my little thing. Like I'm always wearing sparkly shoes at work uh, or something or the other like that. Which is, I mean, I, you, you're allowed to be yourself in your own company. So, you know, you don't have to portray yourself to be a certain type of person just for the sake of it. Right. So, so it's a very be yourself kind of an attitude. And I extend that to the whole team. Like they're supposed to be, I remember like a guy showed up with a Mohawk. This is India. We're talking a blue Mohawk. And I was like, you know, I did not bat an eyelid and I still am so happy about that. Um, Cause he was going to comic con the next day. So, um, so point is that, um, but you know, I'll tell you where women in tech has, has a role to play. I think it's in, I think it's in balancing everything because women in general end up becoming givers on a lot of fronts. And, and there is a, even if there is no explicit expectation from the home environment, like you assume an implicit expectation because you feel that you want to do it. You know, you feel that you have to do it and you just feel like an unwritten, unspoken thing that, Oh, I have to be the nurturer at home. And if I'm not there, then I'm guilty. And I feel like that is the narrative that has to go away over a period of time where, you know, you have to think of it, not as work front and home front, but you have to think about it as, hey, here are the buckets I have in the day. Yeah, so, so I, think, I think if you think about it, right, you take a step back, there are two ways to look at life. One is that 
oh, I've got these polarizing influences in my life, which is work and which is home. And I've got a list of tasks here and I've got a list of tasks there and I have to balance and which is called work-life balance, right? And I think it's not just women who go through it, men go through it, but because of the way society is structured, we tend to, you know, put a lot more pressure on ourselves as women because we end up feeling more responsible, even if the external environment does not impose that on us, right? The other way to look at it is work-life management, where you have um, a list of tasks that you have to get through. Some happen to be at work, some happen to be at home. And um, and you need to sort of deal with those tasks, just like you would deal with your tasks at work and be objective about it so you don't put pressure on yourself. And I feel like there are a lot of successful women I know who have great families and who have great you know, uh, work life. And, and it's not all, only about having a family, right? I mean, you could just have a beautiful home that you love where you cook or you do whatever else for yourself, right? In your personal space. Um, I feel like... Um, they end up focusing on work-life management more more than work-life balance. And they don't sort of take the guilt, if you know what I mean. Like they they take the feedback. There's a big difference between taking guilt and taking feedback, right? Where you objectively try to improve yourself and and get better each day on what you do, or you simply say, hey, this is too much for my plate, so I've got to trade off something. And I think at the workplace, we've got like a bunch of uh, interesting things we've got going as policies, we have a policy that we are rolling out called whatever it takes. So like, what does it take to make you productive? I think specifically learning from the COVID period where everybody's been working remote. And I think that there's a lot more trust that's established, you know, and um, you basically say whatever it takes. So, you know, we'll do whatever it takes to make you comfortable and turn you to whatever it takes to make the company's vision happen. Right. So I think that allows for flexibility and also having things like a work concierge where you can get your errands run, other things happen. So that, you know, your, your, your time is used better, um, you know, because then that kind of takes stuff off your plate and you can still keep your spouse happy. Like I know many occasions where if I travel with like male leaders on my team, I'll make them buy gifts for their spouses because I'm like, just do it. You know, I mean, just do it, man. It just makes them happy. And generally you should do it. Like, why not do it? And when we are at home, like in the office, then let's say if somebody's got a birthday, we're like, do you want admin to send a cake? You know, because sometimes personal life is about showing up you know, and remembering, being remembered rather than, um, you know, explicit, very, very severe kind of, you know, demands that comes more from work. So, so yeah, so that's some of the stuff that we do. So I think uh, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, we're going to start a mentorship group soon, but not like those constipated, like really boring, hum-ha kind of mentorship things, but um, we're going to just have basic, like apply for a chat and we'll have 30 minute one-to-one conversations about women to be with women trying to do different things. It's just a small way of giving back where I feel it's important. Non-constipated mentorship sounds really interesting. And now it's time for the rapid fire round. What has been your pr- proudest moment? I think um, raising the $200 million check from Reliance because it vindicated a lot of... Who's your biggest uh, mentor role model? Uh, so Louis Miranda, he's a U Chicago alum. Like, you know, 10 years ago, I picked up the phone and said, hey, I want to change something about the world. He didn't know me, but he listened to me for an hour. And now we're just really great friends. And the one piece of advice you wish you had received earlier. Don't go the distance alone. If you're not, a, not an EdTech founder, what would you be doing? I would be working hard to unify the handicraft sector all across the world. Like artisans, figuring out a way to build a very interesting tech-centric way where we can, we can sort of... Um, create like a Wikipedia of art everywhere and contemporary art and contemporary handicrafts and figure out how we unify these movements across the board and create products that are 
you know, directly feed profit back to the source. That's great. I think I love what you guys are doing at Antler. And I think that with the number of entrepreneurs that you guys are supporting across the world, if you tell them to focus on what matters, you know, which is focus on creating the impact and the money will follow. And, you know, I'm I'm sure your tribe will grow stronger and and you guys will do amazing things with with the world that you're trying to um, make products for. Thank you, Aditi. You have been listening to the Antler VC cast with UC Salavera and me, Pooja Parwani. To know more about Antler, our portfolio companies and our philosophy, visit us at www.antler.co or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook at Antler Global. Thank you for listening.